using an ice cube, a garden hoe, and a heart to make big ideas happen. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Safi Bacall, author of Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Welcome, Safi. Thanks. Glad to be here. So give us a brief summary of your experience and, and your work uh, that you've done so far. Well, I, this project started years ago when I was asked to uh, join President Obama's Council of Science Advisors, and I was given the mission. We were working on a project, you know, how should we shape the future of national research? And I was told the first day, your job is to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. I was a biotech CEO at the time, running a public company, and I didn't spend a lot of time on history. I didn't know actually anything about science policy or federal government. So unfortunately, I had no idea who Vannevar Bush was and had never heard of his report. And I had three months to write a recommendation to the president of the United States. So it's like, oops, I think I'm in the wrong assignment here. <laughs> but uh, it, it turned out to be fascinating because Vannevar Bush was a guy who helped in many ways turn the course of World War II. We were, when we started that war, we were far behind Nazi Germany and the technologies that would make a big difference to, to the war, whether it was U-boats or planes or nuclear fission, nuclear, you know, atomic weapons. And he mobilized the nation's scientists for war. He invented a new system for innovating incredibly fast. And that was something so many of us struggle in the business world. How do you take a very large organization, in his case, it was the military, two million people, that's at a big disadvantage, some competitors are doing something better and faster, and how do you turn that situation around? And the ideas that he applied, the system that he invented, I found were fascinating and had enormous applications in the business world and hadn't really been studied. It answered so many questions that so many entrepreneur friends and large company CEO colleagues had been wrestling with. So I thought about it for the next several years on and off. And that's where this book came from. In fact, loon shots just hit the shelves. What's the difference though, I have to ask, between a moonshot and a loon shot? Well, the big ideas, if you look back at the course of history, the big ideas that change the course of science, business, or even world history rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. Usually they are dismissed for years or even decades. The champions written off as crazy. Since there wasn't a uh, good word in the English language for that, I made one up. The book is so much, there's so much research that you put into this. There's so much detail and there's so much that we could talk about. So it's really difficult uh, to focus in on one area, but I want to I have you talk about something you've written. Uh, I want to drill down on the five laws of loon shots. What does it mean for a loon shot to have three deaths? So the three deaths was something that uh, when I was um, a few years after starting my biotech company, which our focus was developing new drugs for cancer, we uh, were very lucky to have a guy named Sir James Black who revolutionized medicine maybe 20 or 30 years earlier to invent won the Nobel Prize for inventing all these great new drugs. And he would fly over 
periodically to advise us, or the biologist and chemist at our company about our research. He would live to, he was in Scotland, he would come over to Boston. And I remember late one night, you know, after this long session of, you know, he'd flown 3,000 miles and had 14 hours. And like, I was just ready to crawl home from exhaustion. And we were at some like restaurant having dinner in some room with a whole team and everybody left. And I was ready to just like crawl back home to bed. And he said, no, no, stay, Sophie, stay. Let's, let's tell some stories. And I was like, oh my God, how can this guy in his 80s outlast me? But I remember I was started to sort of complain. I was sort of depressed about a project in the lab that wasn't doing well. And then he leaned over and he patted my knee and he said, ah, oh, Safi, it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times. And I thought about that over the years. And it was certainly true in his cases. Each of his drugs, whether it was a histamine antagonist and beta blockers, revolutionized an area of medicine. And if you look back at the breakthroughs that really change science or even business, uh, they rarely are obvious the first time you, you know, somebody stumbles on them. And usually as they push them out forward into the world, they seem to hit these like fatal roadblocks. And then somebody picks them up and keeps going. And that's sort of counter to what we usually hear, like these ideas arise fully baked and the person's a genius. Most of the time they stumble around, they fall, they random walk their way to success. And so that was one of the things I realized it's very important to understand either as an entrepreneur or a leader or a manager or a creative or a scientist is that the first time something hits what might appear to be a fatal roadblock, that's not necessarily a sign to give up. I mean, this whole Silicon Valley mantra of fail fast and pivot is actually the, exactly the opposite of what you want to do. So I'll give you an example. This, the statins is a uh, drug class that was invented in the 80s that lowers cholesterol. It's probably saved millions of lives, prevented millions of heart attacks in the last 20 or 30 years. But the first time the scientist who came up with the idea for the statins, uh, a Japanese scientist named Akiro Endo, there had been all this excitement about lowering cholesterol, but the first wave of trials of diets to lower cholesterol, you know, eat less eggs and stuff, all of them failed to show any benefit, and a lot of people in the industry gave up. That was sort of the first death. Then he kept going, he kept going, he persisted, and after a while he tried his drugs in, he, he found a, drug, a promising drug, tried it in the lab, in, a, in an early animal model study, which is what you do in drug discovery, you tried it in mice and rats, absolutely nothing. And almost anybody else in the industry would have given up. That was a complete failure. But he had an idea that maybe there was something off there because it seemed to work so well in other places. And he said, maybe it just doesn't work in mice and rats and we should try something else. So he kept going. And only years later, people found out that mice and rats don't have bad cholesterol. They only have good cholesterol. And statins only work by lowering the bad cholesterol. Humans have both. And then later he tried it in chickens and dogs and saw that it worked. But he persisted. And those were the, there were many more deaths along the way. But if he hadn't persisted, if he'd followed this sort of Silicon Valley mantra of fail fast and pivot, we would have never had, it's about a third of a trillion dollars from the statins over the last 20 or 30 years. And the many companies that gave up along the way all lost out on that discovery, not to mention if he had given up, 
we wouldn't have had this drug that saved millions of lives. So that's what it means. That's why the three deaths is so important to keep in mind if you're working on something that you hope will become big. What's the benefit of LSC in an innovation-driven organization? Well, that's actually, to come back to that statin example, that's a perfect example. When Akira Endo tried his statin drug in the mice and the rats and it didn't work, almost everybody else would have given up but, or gotten mad or looked for some excuse. But rather than give up, he got curious. So LSC for me means listen to the suck with curiosity. It's one of the laws of nurturing loon shots. And what that means is whenever you're working on something really potentially groundbreaking that challenges a lot of the conventional wisdoms, you're going to get a lot of negative reactions. And if you have poured your heart and soul into some idea or some project, whether you're a creative or a designer or a scientist or a programmer, if you poured your heart and soul into something and someone tells you, well, it sucks, your natural inclination is to want to punch them in the face or reject that or dismiss it. Or when people ask you what the feedback was, you say, well, these guys are idiots or they don't know. It's to attack. But the really great entrepreneurs or innovators, the ones who came up with something really important, in, instead of attacking, they take off that defensiveness, dismissing hat, and put on like a Sherlock Holmes hat. They say, help me understand. What is it that might be, why are people rejecting this idea? Why are customers not buying? Why are investors turning away? Or why did this experiment not work? Let's set aside all this desire to attack and defend, and let's investigate without emotion. Let's try to get to the core, because that when you pull on those little threads, you might find that little gold nugget at the end that helps you turn everything around and make your idea from not so good to something brilliant. What does it mean to be a gardener and not a Moses in the digital age? That's, that's another myth that I've seen out there that's kind of spread by a lot of popular articles about leadership and so on, which is that the leader stands on top of a mountain and raises his or her staff and anoints the chosen project, the holy loon shot, the crazy idea that everyone thinks is nuts. Like Steve Jobs, as if he was on top of a mountain saying, oh, we'll do the iPod or we'll do this. But if you look back at how those discoveries or inventions or products really happen, those leaders were much less like Moses. They led much less like a Moses on the top of a mountain and much more like a gardener, balancing the touch and balance between the creatives who are working on the ideas and the soldiers who are turning those ideas into real products. And they nurtured the creatives and they nurtured the soldiers and they managed the transfer between the two, which is where most innovation fails. This Innovation rarely fails because of the supply of new ideas. If we put 20 people in a room, we'd probably come up with 200 ideas for new strategies or new products and whatever business you're working on. The failure is almost always between the creatives and the soldiers or between the time you spend being creative and the time you spend translating that. So the really great leaders and managers think of themselves less like a Moses, let me tell you what the great idea is, and more like a gardener managing that nursery of loon shots of crazy ideas, helping those baby ideas come out not too early, not too late. And when they get 
stuck in the field, making sure they're not trampled, making sure there's good feedback between those ideas back into the lab so that you could keep this iterative loop, take that product from its early wobbly state into a mature grown product that really helps customers. You and I earlier were talking about the Innovation Collective and this idea, you know, Nick Smoot started with um, curating entrepreneurship within your community and helping nurture those innovative ideas. What would your advice be to uh, a community who wants to pull together um, entrepreneurs and, and, and basically help nurture that innovation? I think... I, I think of the uh, things that you need to be successful in doing something like that. Since I don't have a good memory, I think of it in terms of a visual cue. And I think of an a ice cube, a garden hoe, and a heart. The ice cube is about separating the creatives and the soldiers or the time you spent being creative from the time you spent getting stuff done and focused on operations and execution. The garden hoe we just talked about is managed more like a gardener, nurturing those two groups or those two times. But the last one is probably the most critical one for a group like the Innovation Collective or if you want to encourage your community. And that's to love your artists and soldiers equally. Meaning there's so much focus on lionizing the creatives and the ideas, but not enough focus on translating those ideas into products that you can deliver on time, on budget, on spec consistently. You can think of one as the artist work and one as the soldier work. And if you spend too much time focused on one and not the other, you'll get nowhere, either direction. If you spend too much time lionizing the creatives, then the soldiers who have to get the job done are gonna be demotivated and demoralized and they won't work well together. And vice versa, if you spend too much time on the deliverables and the metrics and the timelines and not enough time on the creatives, then you won't have any interesting new ideas. So the trick as a manager or a leader in setting that up, I think of as the heart. You gotta love your artists and your soldiers equally. If you're setting up an innovation lab, sure, you wanna reward the innovations, the innovators, the ideas, but not to the point where the people who are getting the job done are demoralized. Sounds good. Dr. Safia Bacall, author of Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Disease, and Transform Industries. Thanks for joining us. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to get a copy of your book, how can they do that? I uh, go to loonshots.com. That's my website. Or follow me on Twitter. My handle is just my full name. Thanks again. And you can certainly tell how much time you put into this book uh, and all the research we've done. I highly recommend it. If you guys want to follow me, you can. Uh, you can go to tanyahall.net. I've got links to all my social sites. Thanks for watching.